RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. It's Shabam, sponsored in part by Google. Not helping, not helping. Truck, go right, no, go left. Last episode, the kids made it to Nadine's. Mm, these are awesome. And replenished their supplies. They're military ration protein bars. But with the house surrounded by Zinskis. What do we do? You guys get to the garage and get those bikes out. They had to make a tough choice. Okay. You guys ready? They loaded up their packs with a few days' worth of water and food, made their escape on bikes. Got it. Go, go. Now they're headed to the Vandenberg safe zone via the freeway because it's the quickest route. And as Nadine pointed out when they were still in the house, the freeway is usually above the surface streets, so we're less likely to run into any Zinskis. Go, go. Come on. Now, if we were trying to get from Culver City to Vandenberg, how would we get there? And how long would it take? A quick check on Google Maps shows us that it's 155 miles from Nadine's house to the Vandenberg Air Force Base. Please proceed to the highlighted route. Which, if you follow the navigation of your GPS or listen to Siri, should take around two hours and 40 minutes. If you take the most direct route with the freeways, and you assume there's not that much traffic, which could change at any time. So I'm estimating five hours and 53 minutes. We could take a car that runs on gas, or we could take an electric car like Mel's Tesla. It's hot. It's hot. And the car says we'd get there with 17% battery charge left. But there are other forms of transportation that could get us to Vandenberg, like trains and buses. Google estimates that with public transportation, it would take us about 18 hours, including transfer times. If we were flying in a Cessna, like my dad used to fly, we could take a slightly shorter straight path, which is 133 miles, and get there in little over an hour. And if we were flying in the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, the rapid holder for the fastest aircraft in the world with an official top speed of 2,193 miles per hour. That's more than three times the speed of sound we could. Well, I could, since there's only two seats, and I can't fly a plane. Theoretically, I could get there in 3.6 minutes. These days, we have machines that get us places and computers that tell us where to go and how long it will take. You have arrived at your destination. So how does your phone know all this? First of all, there are sensors on the freeways that detect the size and speed of cars. That's how you get your traffic information. Your cell phone company knows where your phone is based on how close you are to the nearest cell phone towers. And Google has built a huge map with all kinds of data in it. And all this constantly updating information is merged using servers and then spit out onto your cell phone. Take the US 101 North exit toward Ventura. So you know where you're going, and you can make plans. Aloha, and welcome aboard. It's so easy to get around these days that you can leave Los Angeles by plane, and land in a tiny island in the middle of the ocean six hours later. And this is considered routine. It happens 14 times a day. And still, what do we complain about? You know, why can't they make planes where you don't have to switch your phone to airplane mode? Enjoy your flight. So we're going to break up this episode into two parts because there are two main aspects of getting around. Transportation, which is what we use to get from place to place. And navigation, turn right, which is how we get from place to place. Part one, transportation. Okay, let's start off with a brief history of ground transportation. That sounds kind of boring, but it's really not. And since the kids are riding bikes, let's start with bikes. Here we go. The first usable bike was invented around 1817 by a German dude, and it was called Laufmaschine. <laughs> Super! Which means walking machine, because it had no pedals and you walk rode it. Bicycles with pedals came a few years later, and they're great because they combine the oldest form of human locomotion, the leg, with one of the most revolutionary human inventions, the wheel. No, the axle that connects the turning wheel to the not turning rest of the vehicle. 
and that was invented at 4.37 p.m. on November 18, 3200 B.C. That's not true. But we do know that a 5,000-year-old artifact known as the Ljubljana Marsh's wheel is the oldest known remains of a wheel with an axle. It's called the Ljubljana Marsh's wheel because it was found in a marsh near the Slovenian capital, Ljubljana. And 5,000 years ago, the cart with that wheel must have gotten stuck and sunk into the swamp. I told you the wheel thing would get stuck if we went through the marshes. Which is why archaeologists believe that the idea of a wheeled transportation device, like a cart, appeared here first. This wheeled thing was a brilliant invention because now you could take an animal and hook it up to the wheeled thing and then it could pull it. So for thousands of years, land travel involved either your legs or the legs of an animal. Chariots, wagons, and carriages, the wheeled vehicles of the past, were all powered by the legs of something else. But unfortunately, a big problem with legs is that they get tired. Okay, it's getting dark. And Nadine looks tired. What? I think we should call it a night. You're right about the getting dark part, Elliot. The other problem with legs is that the animals with the legs, like horses and cows and humans for that matter, need to do all kinds of inconvenient things like eat and drink, which takes up time. And then there's the biggest time suck. Where do we, uh, sleep? Um... In those. <clears throat> this one's locked. Come on. This one's locked too. Before the 1800s, our main forms of land transportation relied on animals. And a downside of relying on animals that need to eat and sleep is that a lot of time and energy is spent keeping those animals alive. And there's another downside. They aren't all that powerful. Take a horse. There's a limit to how much a horse can pull. And there's a limit to how many horses you can hook up at once. Therefore, there's a limit to how much stuff you can pull. This, by the way, is where the term horsepower comes from. When something has an engine rated at 140 horsepower, it means it can do the work of 140 horses. So by the 1800s, people had been hooking up wheeled things to domesticated animals for thousands of years, and they knew that it's not practical to hook up more than about eight animals at a time. So people were looking for ways to increase horsepower without the horse part. The steam engine had been around for 20 years, but it wasn't until the early 1800s that the British were able to hook it up to a locomotive, which took the animals out of the equation. They had lots of power, so they could haul lots of stuff. As long as the coal was burning and the water was boiling, they would just run, no need for sleep. By the 1830s, Germany and the US started building trains too. And from then until the early 1900s, trains dominated land transportation. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed on May 10, 1869, it not only gave people the ability to travel from coast to coast, but it also allowed lots of stuff to get transported to towns that didn't have seaports. Trains and the cargo they brought are what developed the western United States. The Transcontinental Railroad was an engineering marvel. Laying all that track, cutting through mountains, building bridges over rivers was dangerous and expensive. But travel was still limited. Trains only ran at certain times and only went along certain routes. So from 1800 to 1900, there were inventors all over the world experimenting with making powered vehicles that didn't need animals or tracks and could give you personal travel freedom. What was slowly taking shape was the age of the car. There's a zombie apocalypse and I have to flee for my life. I know, I should probably lock my car and take the keys. This one's open! And it's a Mercedes SUV! Oh, Sleeping in style. Speaking of Mercedes-Benz, in 1888, Carl Benz, the guy after whom the Benz part is named, was the first to mass produce an automobile that ran on gas. By the time the First World War started in 1914, 
companies all around the world were making cars that ran on gas or steam, like the Ford company that was working on the Model T. So you might have noticed that we mentioned this period of 1800 to 1900 quite a bit on Shabam. And that's because it was during this era that all sorts of world-changing inventions came into being like the battery in 1800, the tin can in 1810, the stapler in 1841. The stapler. Yeah, that's huge. Yes, the stapler. How else are you going to keep two pieces of paper together without <laughs> having them fall apart? <laughs> that's life-changing. Typewriter, 1829, antiseptics, light bulbs, alternating current, the zipper, and dynamite. All right, back to cars. When Henry Ford came out with the Model T in 1908, the age of cars had arrived. Obviously, they didn't have all the modern accessories like an array of cameras and a dashboard monitor and side mirror mounted spotlights. Because this is the Ford F1. But they also didn't have a bunch of things that we might think are pretty standard. Forget heated seats or radios. It didn't even have a speedometer and no turn signal or windshield wipers or even a gas pedal. You controlled speed with a lever on the steering wheel and the top speed was about 45 miles per hour. And from then on, cars just kept getting better and better and more sophisticated. Nowadays, cars are full of computers that even tell you when you're falling asleep. Automobiles dominate travel in most countries and have become a symbol of personal travel freedom, where the car can pretty much go wherever you want, whenever you want, and there's space in the back to put your stuff. The trunk. Did you know that a trunk is called a boot? In England? I did. Did you know that boot is called a Wellington? No, I did not know that. Wellington. Yes, Wellington. Wellies. Wellies are boots. And brawlies are umbrellas. Ha! And knickers Okay, but are... also when they say crisps, they mean chips. And then when they say chips, they're talking about fries. Okay, but what are they talking about when they say fries? Really? What? What? <laughs> are you two finished? Because the kids are also having a conversation about food, and we're missing it. Please tell me you packed more of those magic military ration protein bars. I did. Thank Sweet. God. Also, beef jerky, trail mix, emergency boxed water, fire starter, mylar. What's mylar? It's a super warm plastic blanket. My dad carries one with him everywhere. It looks like folded up tinfoil. NASA uses it in their spacesuits. Thanks, Wikipedia. Also, I threw in my dad's multi-tool, a first aid kit, some hats for the sun, toilet paper, dibs, flashlights. You mean Zinsky attractors. And since someone crashed the car and left our solar panel behind... <sighs> Come on. I figured a hand radio would help. Brilliant! A hand crank radio! We need one of those. We have one of those. Nadine's holding it. That's not what I'm... But a vehicle is only half of what you need to get around so easily. In order for cars to go so fast, you need to drive on something that's smooth. Like the freeway that the kids are on. Vandenberg! They said Vandenberg! At least we're on the right track. Was there ever any doubt? Go to sleep, Elliot. So no scary campfire stories about freeway monsters? Not funny, Elliot. There once was a zombie Stop. named Zinsky. When the Model T was introduced, roads were a mess. They were basically dirt paths that turned into muddy rivers when it rained. Driving was still a novelty. It was bumpy, slow, and kind of a pain. This is kind of a pain! Yeah, but we're going 20 miles an hour! Then, in 1926, the first highway system was created. This new network of roads gave trucks and cars a way to go all over the place. Cars could go faster, and they could go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted, which means more stuff and more people could move around more. Okay, let's fast forward 30 years. 1956. Look at all this traffic. So finally, America gets the big interstate highway system. More lanes and straighter paths, which meant faster transport. 
That's why today, when you look at the highways and all the numbers, some of them say I-95 or I-15, which is the interstate system built in the 50s, and some say US-23 or US-101, which is the US highway system built in the 20s. A great trick about these two highway systems is that they were designed so you could get a sense of where they go just by looking at the numbers. Roads with even numbers usually go east-west. Like historic U.S. Route 66, which runs from Chicago to Los Angeles. Roads with odd numbers usually go north-south. Like Interstate 5, which runs from San Diego to Seattle. And the easiest way to remember that is that the words even, east, and west all have an E in them, and the words odd, north, and south all have an O in them. This is our transportation network that connects all our cities and towns from Maine to California and to Hawaii. You think so? To Hawaii? No. But you could drive to Alaska if you wanted to. Why? Because Canada also has a highway system. <laughs> In fact, without good transportation networks like roads and trains, you can't have a successful country with a happy, healthy population. You need to be able to move stuff and people around easily. You need roads. So in the last episode, when we talked about moving food around in trucks, or in episode four, when we talked about sending messages via horseback, the thing they have in common is roads. But for now, let's get back to the kids who are on the 101 freeway, which was built in 1926. Currently, it is littered with abandoned cars, including the Mercedes S-Class SUV that has been baking in the morning sun for three hours. Oh, good God, it's hot. <sighs> Owen, wake up. Move over. <sighs> Oh, oh my. Whew, that's better. Let's see what's going on. That's the same message as before. It must be recording. They say Vandenberg, but are you guys sure we're going the right way? I know we took the 101 to get there. Why do you guys say the before all of the freeway numbers? Uh, what are you talking about? In Wisconsin, we didn't say the 94, it's just 94. <laughs> Whatever, explain cheese curds. Cheese curds are the best. Whether it's the simple dirt paths of the past or complex megasystems of the modern era, transportation networks are what allow us the freedom to travel pretty much wherever we want. Even if we choose not to use these roads, we still have the option to do so. And it's easy to forget that this freedom didn't always exist for everyone. I think it's go back in time time again. To help us tell this story, we talked to Richard Blackett, historian of the abolitionist movement from Vanderbilt University, and Professor Barbara McCaskill, professor of English at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Okay, we're back in 1848. James Polk is president of the United States. There's no electricity yet, no planes, no cars, and the U.S. highway system wouldn't get built for another 78 years. The main form of transport was a ship, like a steamship, or a carriage drawn by horses, or a train. And by the way, the train system was a mess in the South because all different companies owned all different railroads and different stretches of track, some of which weren't even the same gauge. Gauge is the width of the tracks. 1848 is also the era of slavery in the U.S. There's more than three million people enslaved in the South, men, women, and children. The overwhelming fear among slaves is the prospect of being separated from their family by being sold further south. And in many instances, when you read some of the explanations of why slaves run away, that is the overwhelming reasons that they give. Because they have seen it happen before, and they know it's likely that it could happen to them at any time. The last story we're going to tell in part one is a story about transportation and escape. William and Ellen Craft were enslaved people working in the same household in Macon, Georgia. 
They wanted to get married, but they were reluctant to because they would have children and under the slave system, those children would be slaves. So they delayed getting married. Ellen knew all too well how little control an enslaved person had over their own lives and the lives of their kids. When Ellen was 11 years old, she was taken away from her mother, given as a wedding gift to her half-sister, Eliza. Okay, let's pause here to explain Ellen's backstory because it's a little complicated. Ellen's father was a white slave owner. Ellen's mother was one of his slaves. Ellen's father had another daughter with his white wife, and that daughter's name was Eliza. So Ellen and Eliza were half-sisters, but Eliza was white and Ellen was mixed race. Eliza ended up marrying another white slave owner from Macon. And then Ellen's father, also her owner, took her from her mother and gave her to Eliza, her half-sister, as a wedding present. And in Macon, that's where Ellen met William, who worked for the same slave owner. They knew that in order to truly be able to control their own lives, they had to get out of slavery. They had to escape. William and Ellen hatched a daring plan that had never been tried before. They would escape not under the cover of darkness, but in broad daylight. Because of Ellen's light skin, they decided to dress her as a wealthy white man and have William travel as her slave. Together, they would use public transportation to get to Philadelphia in the free north. This was a gutsy idea. It required lots of planning, like secretly buying clothes and supplies and timing the escape during the Christmas break so they wouldn't be missed. But there were other huge obstacles. First of all, neither one of them could read or write. So they couldn't just read train schedules. They had to remember snippets of conversation they heard from the wealthy white people around them. I think we can suspect that William and Ellen Craft had excellent, highly refined memories. To avoid having to write, they wrapped Ellen's arm in a sling. But it was still a problem. Because under slave law, every state that you cross with a slave, the slaveholder had to sign that this was his slave. Another problem was that dudes in 1848 had mustaches and beards. They decided to wrap a bandage around her face and pretend that she had a toothache. This type of bandage is called a poultice. Really what that bandage intended to do was to prevent people from wondering why a grown man didn't have any facial hair. <laughs> that was the issue. It also gave her an excuse not to talk because perhaps the biggest danger was that by deciding to take public transportation in broad daylight, the more interactions they had, the higher the risk of getting caught. Southerners were on the alert. They were on high alert for African-Americans who were escaping slavery. Places of transport, railroad stations, ports, ship docks were very well guarded. With a convincing disguise and a plausible story, William and Ellen boarded a train from Macon to Savannah. And in the very first leg of their journey, someone Ellen knew sat across from her. And she had to carry on a conversation <laughs> with this woman for quite some time, hoping against hope that she would not be detected. And they talked about why she was going to Philadelphia. And of course, the fact that she was ill and her face was wrapped in a poultice won her a lot of sympathy, even from somebody who should have recognized her. So that was a close call. But the troubles were only beginning, because once in Savannah, there's no straight shot up to Philly like there is now. To get there, they had to take a steamship to Charleston, South Carolina, another steamship to Wilmington, North Carolina, a train, another ship, and another train. From a vehicle standpoint, that's already a grueling trip. 
Another thing to keep in mind is that even though they were escaping together, they couldn't really travel together. They can't sit side by side most of the time. Because William is pretending to be Ellen's slave, he has to sit in a separate carriage with the other enslaved black people anytime Ellen is on the train. So there's always the risk when you're changing trains, you lose connection with one another because she might be in the front of the train and he is in the back, which of course creates another kind of danger because there's one instance in which William oversleeps and when she is ready to leave, he's nowhere to be found. Both of them had to be able to use their wits because for a large part of the journey, they wouldn't even be together. So they're traveling through a disjointed transportation network, unable to read or write, and also unable to communicate even with each other for most of the time through places that are looking to capture people like them. It's not surprising they had a few close calls. They had to get a ferry. And she had to sign a piece of paper that said, William is her slave. But of course she can't write. And even though she explained to the clerk that her writing hand was in a sling, the clerk insisted that she use her other hand to sign her name. That's one of those moments when it appears the escape is going to fail. And she was sweating bullets at that point. And who comes to the rescue is a young southerner man. He must have been impatient or he might have taken issue with the clerk's attitude. We don't know what the reason was, but he spoke up on Ellen's behalf and basically said to the clerk, you see this man is ill. Don't you see this is a sick, very sick man? His hand is in a sling. He can't be expected to write. You need to let him go. And and the ferryman say, well, would you pledge that this man is who he say he is and this is his slave? And the young man said, I will vouch for him. <laughs> and this is someone who didn't even, he just wanted to get on the ship. <laughs> he didn't really know Ellen. When they finally got to Philadelphia three days later, they had traveled through the lion's den in plain sight and made it out alive. And every step on the train, they were almost caught, and the hotels where they were staying, they were almost caught, so that on each step of the journey, they ran the risk of being caught and taken back into slavery. William and Ellen Craft had traveled more than a thousand miles using fewer transportation options than we have today, during a time when they were basically being hunted. Fast forward to today. So the ease of transportation that we enjoy today is something to cherish. We have vehicles that move fast and give us great autonomy over when and where we go. And we have roads and train tracks that make using these vehicles possible. And we live in a time and place where we have the freedom to go pretty much wherever we want. Though not nearly as difficult as the craft journey, the kids have another long day of riding ahead of them. The sign up ahead says 23 goes to the right. We want to stay to the left. How much farther do you guys think it is? Tired, Nadine? No, just worried about food and water, Elliot. It was like three hours on the bus, but there was a ton of traffic. Uh, I think we have a few more days ahead of us.
All right, that's the end of part one. You can go directly to part two, or you can take a little break and eat some pancakes. And if you're really an overachiever, you can eat those pancakes and call up a thousand of your friends and tell them, hey, you should support this show. Go to the website, shabamshow.com, sign up on iTunes. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you can support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bam. Boom. Shabam. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.